book of Jonah. You may remember we are doing a journey with Jonah. We're now into our fourth message with Jonah, and we're going to move today into the third chapter. The third chapter has 10 verses, similar in fashion to the second chapter, but today we'll be in the chapter 3 as we get into our journey with Jonah. Of the four chapters, so there's not much time we have left in Jonah. But in previous weeks, we have learned or reminded ourselves, because we know the story of Jonah is quite familiar with us, that we reminded us that Jonah received a word from God. In the very beginning, God had clearly told him a directive to go to Nineveh, call out against the city, and be able to preach to the city. We know Jonah disobeyed. He chose on his own not to go, and he ran. He ran. The journey should have been, if he went, it should have been 550 miles to the east to Nineveh. But rather what he did was he disobeyed and ran. He went to Joppa, where he boarded a ship to go to Tarshish, which is going to be about five times the distance in which he should have traveled if he would have obeyed. So the interesting thing that comes up with all that about Jonah, we had not mentioned this yet, but it's interesting that of all the prophets mentioned throughout the scripture, Jonah is the only prophet ever recorded to have run away from God. That's an interesting thing to think about. But as we then recognize that Jonah disobeyed the directive and ran from God, the only prophet to be able to do so, we know as he ran, then God intervened. He sent a mighty storm upon the sea, a mighty tempest. The sailors were quite frightened as the storm came upon the sea. They soon discovered, as Jonah shared with them, they had to wake him up, if you remember, that he was a Hebrew and he was running from God. And the only thing that they could do to save themselves was to throw Jonah overboard. You remember they were quite hesitant at first to do that. They tried to roll harder to land and it just couldn't be done because of the storm. So eventually they do throw Jonah overboard and the sea is completely calm. Of course, we know the first chapter ends in verse 17 with the Lord providing a great fish to swallow up Jonah, to preserve him for three days and three nights. Well, last week in the second chapter, we got more of the story. Again, we're familiar with it, but we noticed how the second chapter turned a little bit and that Jonah is beginning to be a little bit remorseful for his running, his disobedience he's had to God. His rash decision he had to run, he's somewhat regretting. So we see that he's in the belly of the fish. He begins to pray, and he begins to pray, and God gives him a second chance. was fortunate that God gave him a second chance because today we move into the third chapter, and we're going to see that there's some repentance. We found some of that in the second chapter, but there's more repentance to be found into the third. So today we begin to entertain the question, that Jonah then has been rescued from God. He's been given a second chance. So as Jonah then, as it ends the second chapter, is vomited by the fish upon dry land, is he going to disobey and run again like he did before? Or is this time he going to be obedient to what the Lord had calls him to do? That's where we pick up the rest of the story and begins the third chapter. So stand with me today, if you're able to, as we simply stand to honor the reading of the word. And we find that the text is written in Jonah chapter 3. The author says these words, beginning with verse 1 of the third chapter. It says, then all that's happened, the Lord had spoke to the fish, bombed to Jonah upon dry land. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So verse 3, Jonah arose, there's our answer, and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Well, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, which was by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Father, Lord, we thank you for this reading of your word and how we can find in this chapter, Lord, repentance happening. So today, Lord, as we have a message then pertaining to repentance, we pray, Lord, we would heed the message, that we would find application from even a text written so many years ago into modern day, and that we too, need to maybe be repenting from something here today. So if that be the case, Lord, we just invite your spirit to lead, to guide, and direct us during our time of understanding and application. So, Lord, we can be like Jonah, perhaps, and repent of our previous way. So thank you, Lord, for advance for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, each week we read, as our church normally does, from the English Standard Version, the ESV. In the ESV translation that we read from today, you're going to notice, even though we talk about it being repentance, you're going to not find one time in those ten verses of the third chapter, according to the English Standard Version, where the word repent appears. You don't find it anywhere in there. However, the caption in the Bible that I'm reading from, above verse 6, says, The people of Nineveh repent. Which then illustrates for us that the theme of repentance is true enough in this third chapter. And repentance can be found, if you will, in three different ways or in three different persons. First, recognize how it is of Jonah himself, how Jonah has repented. Is given to us in verses 1 through 3, where he's been given his second chance, and he's this time obedient to the Lord. And we find that in his life, he began to change and has had some repentance. You know, he was fortunate that God gave him a second chance. So Jonah is illustrating some repentance in the beginning of the chapter. But it goes further into a second group of people. We find that being the Ninevites themselves. In verses 5 through 8, we see that they seemingly repent of their evil way. But then there's also a third person, a third character 
in the text, if you will, that seems to repent. And we may never think about it, but it seems in verse 9 to say or to allude to the fact that even God is repenting. Now, if you have the King James Version, it actually says the word repent in verse 9 related to God. But in our translation, it just says he relented from what may happen and turned from what he wanted to do to punish the people. So if you will, then, three different ways or three different people of groups find some repentance in the third chapter. So we ask ourselves, then, well, what does all that mean? Well, the answer then would be this, because it brings up an interesting observation pertaining to repentance. It becomes really the focal point of the message for today. But it also means this then, that the word repent in our language as Christians, as believers, we can toss it around quite a bit. And it can be used in our language quite a bit at times. But the question really becomes this then, do we really honestly seek repentance? Do we have a repentant heart? Or do we simply, as the topic comes up and we kind of leisurely toss it around, just asking for a form of forgiveness. It's like, is repentance real? When we begin to have that and desire it in our lives. I mean, that's the direction the message will take us. But before we tackle that message and topic of repentance, which is obvious within the chapter, there is something we must do first. Because we go back to the text, we're going to notice that there is something that seems to be a little amiss. It kind of sticks itself out there, and we can't just dismiss it too quickly. That is in verse 3, where you know, Jonah has obeyed, okay, and now he goes, and said he rose and went to Nineveh. The word of the Lord, he's obedient this time, but here it comes. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. That's been mentioned before, but here it comes now, watch. Three days' journey in breadth. I mean, this may be the most controversial verse in the book of Jonah outside the one that says he gets swallowed by a great fish. Because people are asking, is this city so gargantuan in size? A city like no other? And that it's really going to take three days to walk the span of the city? That's what the verse seems to suggest. Three days journey in breath. Now remember as we begin to discuss this. That in our walk with Jonah, we've already discovered that the trip would be, as I mentioned earlier, 550 miles. We said it's going to take a month to get there. That is, if we're walking with Jonah, if we wanted to walk a mile in 20 minutes, some people walk quicker, some people walk slower. If you're my mom, you're probably going to get there really quick, all right? Because she's traveling really fast, apparently. But on average, say it takes 20 minutes to walk a mile, that would be three miles per hour. All right. If we walk eight hours that day, how far will we walk? 24 miles. Thanks for playing along. So if it's three days, then we're walking across the city. And it's 24 miles. We're saying we're walking per day with three miles per hour times eight hours. In three days, then we walked how many miles? 72. 72 miles. Is Nineveh 72 miles wide? Is that what it's telling us? Because that is a city above all cities, I would think. But I wasn't so sure. So I thought, well, let me kind of do a Google search and find out, you know, what's the size 
of New York City. That's a pretty big city, isn't it, New York City? I'm thinking, well, let's just kind of find out and compare it then to New York City. And I found out, kind of surprisingly, on Google, that New York City is approximately 2.3 miles wide. Quite a surprise. I would have thought it's much wider than that. However, it says Manhattan Island, which becomes part of New York City metro area, is 13.4 miles long. Okay. I thought, well, that sounds like it's bigger then than I first had thought when it said 2.3 miles. But it also said this. Now, if you consider all the neighboring cities, because it's really just not New York, you take all that encompassing area of Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island, the Bronx, and again, Manhattan, all of them connected by several waterways and tunnels and bridges. The city then itself encompasses, listen, 302.6 square miles. I think, all right, now we're talking. That's really big. That's kind of what I thought New York City is about. 302.6 square miles. Which then brings up another interesting observation, or at least a thought. That is the statement, three days journey in breath, referring to the actual size of the city. Or is it making a statement about the area in square miles, perhaps, that Jonah must preach repentance? He's going to walk this area and preach repentance. Is it talking about the journey being in square miles to encompass the entire city? So if that should be the case, that is referring to maybe in square miles to encompass it all then the three-day journey would be quite possible. But even with the New York City comparison, there's still maybe a lingering thought or question in our mind. Like, is that truly just indicative of what Jonah has to do to be able to follow the command the Lord has given him? Is that the size of his task? Or is it simply hyperbole? I mean, is it just exaggeration by the author in the story? So I began to dig a little deeper. I put the comparison to New York City aside, and I consulted a few commentaries, and here's a couple of things I found. The first was a Bible knowledge commentary, a group of scholars at DTS. It says the city Nineveh was surrounded by an inner wall and an outer wall. The huge inner wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet high. That's quite a wall. And it was eight miles in circumference, while the outer wall encompassed fields and smaller towns. The words great city probably included the city of Nineveh itself and its administrative environs around it. Now, though that's pretty interesting then, that could be saying then that it could be truly the size that we may be thinking about in which it would really take three, mile, or three days to cover all this area. But I wanted a little more so I consulted one more commentary called the New American Commentary, and it said this then. While some would dismiss this phrase, again, three days journey in breath, as part of the general hyperbole or exaggeration of the writer, several scholars have shown that it can be understood in a literal sense. In the first century, the historian Diodorus Siculus correlated all the information from the fourth century to see us that Nineveh's total circumference was approximately 55 miles. Given this, a three-day journey would be a reasonable trek around the city. Further, it is reasonable to assume the phrase can relate to the 
entire metropolitan district, which included, you see, the cities listed of Asser and Kalal and some others. So then with that thought, from that commentary, it seemed to concur with the others, that it should be taken literally. That it's maybe not hyperbole or exaggeration. That this is the task that Jonah has set before him. So then with that thought and maybe that clarity and understanding then of what Jonah must do as he now obeys the Lord, notice he seems to be up to the task. As Jonah himself has repented, and now he's ready to preach the word to the great city and its inhabitants. So look again at verse 1 and 2 and notice that he's ready to obey, and he's now going to call out against it. He's going to be able to preach to the city, encompassing the city. But what's going to be his message? I mean, how will he communicate the word that's been given to him? Verse 4 tells us. Look again at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city. Again, a day's journey. He went in, so the very first day begins. He called out, here's his message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Observe the message. According to verse 4, is eight words in length. Eight words. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I need to take a lesson from Jonah. I can't get just eight words. I got a whole lot more than eight words. I've already said way more than eight words. You're going to get more than eight words. But Jonah gets eight words with the city, encompassing about it. Yeah, maybe I should take a lesson from him. But some scholars are very quick to point out that it's not absolutely clear that's all he had to say. Perhaps he had some more. Other scholars just simply state the text is given. It seems to suggest that his message is brief. And just walked around repeating it. Yet 40 days, and then of it shall be overthrown. Those eight words. By the way, in Hebrew, it's only five words. But just notice how he's keeping it simple. Short, simple to the point. There's no fluff. He just simply states it as it is. He conveys the message simply that you better get your life right. Yet 40 days, and none of us should be overthrown. What's all that mean? It simply means you better repent, folks, and you better do it right now. That's the message he's sending. You have 40 days and none of it shall be overthrown. It's essentially saying you better get your life right and you better do it right now. Even though the word repent is now used in Jonah's brief sermon, it is certainly perceived as such. If you want to paraphrase what Jonah's saying, it could maybe say that he's saying that the Ninevites better change their ways, repent, or the city is going to be overthrown and destroyed in a short amount of time, a month and ten days. The message written by Eugene Peterson maybe says it best. He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be smashed. That's how he words it. And really, we should recognize that is certainly in the realm of possibility for God. I mean, Luke 137 tells us nothing is impossible with God. So it would be possible for God to completely destroy the city. I mean, think of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
in Genesis 18 and 19. You know, it was a wicked, evil city of Sodom. Lot, which is Abraham's nephew, chose to live in Sodom because Abraham is concerned about the destruction upon Sodom. He begins to bargain with God, doesn't he? He first asked God, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you not destroy the city? Will you spare the city? Of course, God answers Abraham and says, yeah, if I can find 50 righteous people, I will not bring destruction upon the city. But what does Abraham do? He's not done negotiating yet. He goes from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. 10 people. If God can find 10 righteous people in Sodom, he will spare the city. However, God could not find 10 righteous people. And the text tells us in Genesis 19, he completely, utterly destroyed Sodom. It's gone. So this is not out of a possibility for God to destroy Nineveh. And maybe then, if we want to give the Ninevites some credit, when Jonah begins to preach the repentance that 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown, if we give them some credit, maybe they know somewhat about the power of God. I don't know if it was Sodom and Gomorrah or not, but maybe they are aware of God's awesome, mighty power. Because in the text, when Jonah preaches that word, eight words in length in verse 4, notice in verses 5 through 8, they change their way. They repent. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believe God. They call for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word even reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe. He himself put on sackcloth and satin ashes. He went further and issued a proclamation like kings like to do. It said, by the decree of the king, his nobles, that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mildly to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And Jonah preached eight words, a message of repentance. And it seemingly was heard by the city and its inhabitants and the king. I mean, what a great message and what a response. Note the text even reveals for us in verses 5 through 8, it's not just the people. It's not just the king. Like It goes down to the cows and the goats. They all get involved in repentance. But as we see that, then the question that really comes forward then for us was, well, then how does that relate to us? I mean, yeah, it's happening there in Nineveh, in that text, but how does that relate to us? We know that earlier the word repent is not even used by Jonah. I mean, Jonah essentially says repent or else, and it seems to work. But while the word repent is not used, it's just there. That the people truly repent of what it seems to be their evil, rude, wicked ways. So to understand how that applies to us, for the remainder of our time, we're going to be discussing further repentance. We're going to leave the text a little bit in Jonah and leap to James chapter 4. You can turn there if you want to, but you're going to see it behind me as well. Because James chapter 4 and verses 7 through 10 kind of gives us, if you will, 
a recipe for repentance. It kind of gives us the ingredients of the recipe so we can truly be repentful. So we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, and here's what it tells us. The recipe or the ingredients to repentance. It says in verse 7 of James chapter 4, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In those verses, one verse at a time, we can find the ingredients we need to have a repentant heart. So the first one then is to go back to that is this, to simply submit to God. Just do it. Surrender, submit fully to God, and just also resist the devil. Verse 7 just seems to scream that at us. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. I didn't pick these words. It just tells us simply to do this to begin a journey we really need to truly be repentant. Submission is what is required. But submission is not popular. I mean, the definition or the thought of submit is submit basically means to give over or yield to the power of authority of another. To give over or yield to the power or authority of another. Now looking around everyone here of various ages, I'm looking, I'm looking, I don't think anybody here would really be really excited or to admit that they would like submitting in their life. I, as a husband, fully submit to Sheila because I understand it makes a happy marriage. I don't necessarily like it, but it's what I have to do. And it makes a great marriage. Husbands, if you fully submit to your wife, you'll have a happy wife. A happy wife leads to a happy life. Good for playing along. You got it. So we don't like being submissive. But the text tells us to be submissive. Submissive to who? Submissive to God. But we don't like this thought of being submissive. But the Bible says a lot about being submissive. I mean, the Bible refers to how we need to children submit to the parents. Not all of them like that. Employees supposed to submit to the employers. We don't all like that either. Angels supposed to submit to God. We are all supposed to submit to our elders and submit to one another. But here's the thing. Our response to all those is determined on whether we first submit to God. In our reading today in Jonah, we find that he did not, we know this, he did not initially submit to God. He ran, he disobeyed. How far did he go? He should have been 550 miles, he goes the other way. We know all this already. We've been stated each and every week. When the word came to Jonah, he did not submit. But we begin to ask maybe why. If we really want to truly put ourselves in Jonah's situation, we need to ask, why Why would Jonah not really want to submit to God? Then? I mean, he understood the message. He just didn't want to go. But why did he not want to go? Because if we understand Jonah's situation, 
maybe we even done the same thing. So we put ourselves in Jonah's situation. Truly, we find then that he knew of the wicked atrocities of the Ninevites, of the Assyrians. I mean, he knew of this. I mean, some of his friends, his own people, have probably experienced the wickedness and the cruelty of this fierce group of people. So the very last place he ever wanted to go was on a missionary trip to Nineveh. He hated them. He despised them. So what did he do? We might have done the same thing. When you hate somebody that much, you don't go to them. You run in the opposite direction, which means then he did not submit to God, which was wrong. I suggest that Jonah knew exactly what he was doing, that he knew it was wrong, which leads then to this point, that repentance begins with an awareness that what we've done is wrong. I mean, they say that recognizing your problem is the first step in solving. But Jonah, somewhere between chapter 1, verse 3, where he chose to be disobedient, and chapter 3, now verse 1, where he chose to be obedient, somewhere between there, he knew that he was wrong. And when he knew he was wrong, we see he turns back to God. And God got his attention with the tempest that might be storming the sea. He had this great fish to swallow. Jonah preserved him for three days and three nights. He got his attention. But don't lose sight that Jonah himself then also had to turn back to God. Which means that in his life, he finally then surrendered and submitted to God. And that put him on his road to repentance. His road to repentance, the fact he first submitted to God, as it is for all of us. If we want a repentant heart, we have to submit to God. But James also tells us further in these verses, verse 8 in a special manner, is that we must draw close to God and purify our heart. Again, the words are right there in the verse. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, maybe it could be stated the first step towards drawing close to God, is purifying your heart with confession. Confession. We must confess our sins and that we are sinners. And the confession, which is one of the early stages of repentance, is not just a recognition of a mistake. We can all recognize we make mistakes. We all do. But it is actually the confession and understanding that we have offended God with our action, or maybe even our inaction, like it was with Jonah. Yeah, he ran, but he also had an action to obey. In verse 5, we see the Ninevites even believe God. It says, All the people believe God. They call for a fast, put on a sackcloth. So they began to realize they're wrong. They began to realize that they need to be drawn closer to God, confess their sins, and purify their heart. It's interesting in the story when we're so familiar with Jonah that sometimes we can just simply miss some things that just are there. And one of the things that sometimes is missed is the fact that, I mean, we know that people of the Ninevites were just powerful, arrogant, wicked, ruthless, 
people. That's who they were. But Jonah was the complete opposite. He was this little guy from a weak nation at the edge of a soon-to-be empire. So as he then, as a little guy by himself, yeah, we might be with him on this journey, visiting the city, I mean, easily as he came to diss the city, they could have easily strung him up and abused him. They could have easily done that. They're wicked, ruthless people. And Jonah is one person, sent by God, finally obeying, going to Nineveh, and preaching the word of repentance. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what he's saying. They could have easily then taken that young man, had to probably get some of the fish smell off of him first, and strung him up and abused him. But notice how they didn't do that. They listened to him. Now, mind you, as he's coming out, vomiting from a fish, like we just pointed to, that he might be a rather interesting character-looking dude. I mean, I've never met someone that has been vomited from a fish. I have met people who have smelly fish hands, or that work in a particular industry that makes them sometimes smell bad. When I worked at Emmy Packing Company, come to think of it, I worked at Emge for several summers during the year, and we had this hog production. These hogs are killed. They, they go into this big rosin pit. It's 10 feet deep, 10 feet wide square. So it's this black rosin. Rosin is the substance that pitchers are put on their hands on the pitching mat. But it's heated up in this liquid form, and it's black. It's ugly. It's hot. It's hideous. So they take the hog. They dip it in this pit. And it comes back out. It comes over to the line, and there we are with two pairs of cotton gloves on, dipping it in water, and pulling that rosin right off the back of that hog. And it takes all the remaining hair off the hog. Johnny, I think, has done it too. Yeah. But here's the thing. When you go to the lunchroom, people just get out of your way because you smell awful. I mean, you stink like there's no tomorrow. I mean, the people in Survivor probably smell better than we actually smell when we come out of that rosin room with those hogs. It's awful. It stinks. Jonah must probably stinks. I mean, I can't imagine what it smells like being vomited from a fish. Vomit smells pretty bad, y'all, after three days. So as he's vomited from the fish, he's beginning to preach to the people. And I got to tell you, if a dude like that comes in here to preach to y'all, Maybe I should dress like that. It might get a person's attention. Because Jonah might simply say, look, you better repent. You better do what's right or what happened to you to me can happen to you. And that might get somebody's attention. It might get my attention. Maybe it got the Ninevites' attention. So they come to God or join closer to God. And Nineveh is beginning to change. I mean, look again in the text that tells us that even the king in verse 8, I mean, of all the wicked things that's happening, even the king himself recognizes in verse 8 the evil of the city, and he says, let everyone turn from their evil ways and their violence. It's certainly noteworthy that the king expresses a desire to repent. I mean, a confession of sorts, if you will, for himself and for all the people. A confession leads to conviction. Conviction leads to regret. And when you have some conviction, you become closer, draw closer to God. 
which is what the second point is trying to tell us, is that we need to draw closer to God. But there's also that third ingredient that we must also talk about in our time together. And that's to be afflicted, to be wretched. Verse 9 reveals that to be wretched, to mourn, and to weep. In our reading of Jonah, we see the Ninevites, how now in verses 5 through 8 become afflicted and wretched. In verses 5 through 8, the Ninevites again declare to fast that remove all their fancy clothes that maybe they're having on. They put on sackcloth on their bodies. They wear sackcloth. They, they sit in ashes. They go in mourning. The fast, the regret, and mourning is complete. And that's from the least person to the greatest person. Again, even the king is in on the event. He hears of the news. He hears the impending doom to come upon the city and his people. So he gets off his throne removes his royal robes, and he himself even puts on sackcloth and sits down in the ashes. I mean, he trades his royal robes for rags. And he makes a decree like kings like to do. I mean, he didn't need to make the decree. It was already happening. People were already being mourning and repentant. But he demanded to be done anyway. But not only did he as a king then recognize that it must be done, he went a step further. If you go back and look at the verses, recognize how he went from the least to the greatest. But didn't include all the wildlife in on the scenario. I mean, what's that about? Can you imagine your dog, your cat, putting on sackcloth? That's what you're going to wear. You're going to give them some sackcloth, set them in ashes, let them also be mourning. By the way, you're not going to feed them, you're not going to let them drink. Have you ever heard a hungry cow? Can you imagine the scenario in the city where the entire city is beginning to be remorseful for all the evil things they've done, even down to the critters? I can't imagine what it must sound like when you have all these goats and cows and all these things not being fed for however long that, it repent, that they, the fast was lasting. Babies not being fed, crying out. It must have been an awful scene upon the city of Nineveh. But it finally got their attention. God finally got their attention through Jonah. And now they're beginning to repent. They begin to maybe spell out all the things that's happening that James tells that we need to do to repent. But then as all that is happening, the end-all, be-all of submitting, drawing closer to be afflicted, is not the, all we need to do. There's one more ingredient, and that is to humble yourself before the Lord. They must become humble. We must become humble. To realize we're simply sinners. We're not any more special than anyone else. We're not. At the core, we're still just sinners like any other person. And we've got to humble ourselves to realize that. We're not all that in a bag of chips. I love you. Y'all look great to me. But we're still all just sinners. Every one of us. And because that is true, every one of us needs a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. We need 
Jesus to save us. We must have regret for our sins. And Nineveh teaches us that we should have regret for all of our sins. They had great atrocities. Maybe their sin was greater than ours. But yet sin is sin. You know, we live in an instant society. And because we're guilty of living in an instant society, we really get complacent and just used to the grace of God that's given to us. Which means the moment that we feel the slightest little discomfort with our sin, the minute we have any kind of ill feelings that we know we've offended God, we just run off, make an altar wherever we are, and ask for forgiveness for it to be removed. It's an instant society we're living in. But I think if we ever just recognize truly the offense we have our sins towards God, we might then learn to to fast and to mourn. In the text, we don't know how long the fast continues. Jonah just simply prophesied destruction is going to come in 40 days. Well, you can't go without water for 40 days. You might go without food for a while, but water really can't be done. So maybe the fast didn't last that long. But recognize how it still happened. They were starting to repent from their way. They were starting to change their behavior, change their way. They were mourning, weeping because of what they knew they had done. So when is the last time that any of us have fasted or mourned or wept or humbled ourselves before God and say, God, we're the sinner. We offend you. In our repentance, we at times can be so concerned with more we're stopping back than truly wanting to stop the offense that seems to be repeated to God. There's a story I heard about a man who sent to the government back taxes. He owes them back taxes, so he wrote a check and he sent the government a check for some of his back taxes. He said, I felt so guilty for cheating in my taxes, I had to send you this check. If I don't feel any better, I'm going to send you the rest. So all he was doing was looking for a little better feeling about himself. He didn't really care about cheating on his taxes. He just wanted a better feeling about the fact that he was cheating the government. He was really not repentant. I mean, it goes for us, and we, we can fake tears. You know, we can enter into a time of fasting and some mourning with even selfish motives. But what God really wants is a broken and contrite heart and spirit. It's what David talked about in Psalms 51. I mean, God wants a change of heart and a change of behavior. God wants a change of heart and change of behavior. I mean, isn't that really repentance? That's what we find happening in verse 8. And the king calls for all this to happen. He says, let us give up our evil ways, and our violence. I mean, a repentance really is just a, an about face, a change of behavior, a change in their ways, an about face for what used to be can be no more. Mike Wilkins puts it in perspective when he says this then. He says, think of a husband and wife in a car. The wife tells her husband to turn right at the next junction, and by mistake, he turns left. When he realizes what he has done, he says to his wife, this is how I word it, I'm sorry, love, I went the wrong way. 
but that is all he does, it isn't enough. His saying sorry isn't getting them any closer to where they want to be. If he isn't even stopping them getting further away to get back where they want to be, he needs to stop the car, turn around, and go back on the correct road that his wife told him to take in the first place. That is repentance. But it's true. It's completely turning around and going in the other direction in which we were going. I mean, repentance is not a twisting to God's arm to give him forgiveness. It's not trying to say some magical words. Repentance really is just the move of the Spirit within us. So as we think about repentance, we receive some ingredients. But truly today, we just need to say, God, move me today with your Spirit so that I can leave truly that old life, old person behind and move into this new direction to bring honor and glory to you. Let me leave that old life and into this new. Allow the Spirit today to move you that way, to completely leave the old and look forward to the new person that you are in Christ. Father, Lord, we thank you today for the message of forgiveness as we continue our journey and walk with Jonah. But today, the message, as we think about it, is very familiar with us. We know about how we should repent. Or today, it outlines some things, maybe some ingredients or steps for us to have a repentant heart. But today, I, I pray that we would take this to heart. And for one thing, Lord, that we're still doing today, repeatedly, continually, let's not just ask forgiveness for it, but to completely put it to rest and put it away. And then truly repent and turn directly to you. Well, I'm not sure if we actually have the power to do that. But we can through your spirit. So pray, Lord, your spirit would move us today to truly repent of the old and move into the new, the new person we are through your son, Jesus. We are new people through Jesus. And we're thankful that Jesus took our place in the world. And we pray this in his name. Amen.